I'm Cassie, and I'd like to welcome all your beautiful faces to the very first episode of Crime and Cassie and all things creepy. To kind of summarize what I plan on doing here, I plan on for sure doing one true crime story a week, um, and then eventually maybe some paranormal episodes, something with some horror movie tidbits, I love that kind of stuff, um, some dark history, really nothing's off the table, it kind of all hopefully falls under this umbrella, um, but it's mostly a true crime show. Um, so I will, you know, sprinkle in the funny sometimes. Um, obviously I want to remain respectful to victims and their families, but I think there's always something funny in any story. Um, obviously not the murder itself, but all the bullshit along the way. Um, but this one is pretty heavy, so there will be a little bit less funny. Um, and I promise I'll get better as this goes on. So apologies if it's Awkward City right now. Um, it's episode one, people. So bear with me. So what do you guys think? I hope you're excited. I know I'm excited and I can't wait to get started. Um, please, 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 wherever you are watching or listening, if it's in podcast version, um, like and subscribe. And don't be shy to hit me with that five-star review. And let's get to it. Today, we're going to be talking about the most terrifying serial killer you've never even heard of. Okay, maybe some of you have heard of him, but to me, this is one of the most diabolical, methodical, terrifying individuals I've ever heard of. I pretty much have not seen any TV specials about him, um, any documentaries. I actually heard about him on Morbid Podcast, um, and that kind of seems to be the only info I can get on him is through podcasts other than like Googling stuff, obviously. Um, he was able to possess self-control, which is so unusual for serial killers. And truly what finally got him caught in the end was good old-fashioned greed. I am talking about Israel Keys. Now, just to warn you before we go on, this story contains rape, murder, abuse of a corpse, amongst other insane, horrible things. If that's a no from you, I totally understand. I won't take offense. This one is a lot. Now, to start the story off, we're going to a night in June 2011 in the town of Essex, Vermont. 49-year-old Bill Courier and his wife, 55-year-old Lorraine Courier, are at home sleeping for the night. They're described as friendly, peaceful, good people. They're also described as homebodies, and to that I say same. They were two peas in a pod. They loved doing everything together. Bill, he was always happy. He worked as an animal care tech at the University of Vermont. Lorraine, she actually worked in the medical field, excuse me, uh, and she was known as sweet. Um, people describe her as a ball of joy, which I think is so, so cute. Um, but they were very well respected. They were very loved. What they don't know is this will be the last moment of peace for them. They never could have known that a man had cut their phone lines, broken in through their attached garage, and was about to start what he dubbed a blitz attack. The man had dug up a previously buried kill kit containing things like guns, silencers, ammunition, zip ties, Drano, and lye. I mean, that's, that's a kill kit. I'd call it a kill kit. All the things that you kind of don't want to ever come across anybody and they have that on them. Um, so... They awoke to a man wearing all black with a headlamp on, brandishing a gun. He then tied them up with those zip ties. 
and forced them into their own vehicle, a dark green Saturn sedan. He then takes them to an abandoned farmhouse. An abandoned farmhouse. I don't know about you, but that is my actual worst nightmare. It's completely out of a horror movie. It's completely insane. I can't imagine really anything more terrifying. Uh, so he gets there and he takes Bill out of the vehicle first and he takes them down into the basement and ties him to a stool, leaving Lorraine in the car. When he returns to the car to retrieve Lorraine, he sees she's gone. Lorraine's out of here. She's making a run for it and she's almost to the main road and then he tackles her to the ground. He then drags her into the bedroom, again, in this abandoned farmhouse, and he ties her up by her arms and her legs down to the bed. And then right around this time, Bill starts screaming from the basement, you know, where's my wife, where's my wife? He's freaking out. And the man goes downstairs and Bill's ready to get physical. He is ready to fight his way out of the situation. He started to wiggle free a little bit. And this, in the man's words, pisses him off. He claims that at that point, he just loses control. And then he starts to beat Bill with a shovel before eventually fatally shooting him. He then goes upstairs to Lorraine where he sexually assaults her. And then he um, starts to strangle her until she loses consciousness. Uh, when she regains consciousness, he takes her down to the basement to see what he's done with Bill uh, before coming up behind her and strangling her to death with a rope. He then douses their body in that Drano from the kill kit and puts their bodies in garbage bags and just leaves them into, in the corner of the basement of this abandoned farmhouse. During the time that Bill and Lorraine are reported missing, the Essex Police Department go to their home and they see that their phone lines have been severed, their shattered glass everywhere, and their vehicle, that dark green Saturn sedan, is missing. So they end up finding out that that sedan has actually been found backed into a dumpster at an apartment complex. Um, and around this time, they also release a sketch in hopes of finding the suspect, but nothing ever comes of it. That is until the horrifying events of what happened to Samantha Koenig come to light. So it's just before 8 p.m. on the night of February 1st, 2012. 18-year-old Samantha Koenig is a barista at a coffee stand called Common Grounds. It's located on Tudor Road in Anchorage, Alaska. Fun fact, I too was a barista at 18. I worked at Starbucks. Samantha is one of six children. She's described as a sweetheart. She's described more than anything I've heard is that she's hilarious. Um, I feel like she's someone you would wanna be friends with. Um, she had a lot of friends. People said she was kind, she was loyal. You know, she had a serious boyfriend um, that they were very much in love. Um, now this coffee stand, it seems safe enough. It's located, again, on Tudor Road in Alaska, in Anchorage, Alaska, and it's typically pretty busy, but there had been heavy snowfall right before this, so it was much quieter than usual and kind of like secluded with like mounds of snow, if that makes sense. Um, so the night is actually described as extremely dark and cold. Now, I'm a weirdo. I love cold weather. I love it. Um, but an extremely dark night, no thanks. That is creepy alone. 
After kind of staking it out for a few days and observing how unusually quiet it was, um, a man decides, I'm going to rob this place. I'm saying rob in air quotes because, come on, dude, we all know why you're really there. You're not just there to rob the place. You're there because you're a monster. Wearing a disguise, he approaches the coffee stand with a headlamp carrying zip ties, a police scanner in his ear, a coffee thermos, and a 22 Taurus revolver. A lady's gun, if you ask me. So he sees there's this pretty young girl working and he notices something else. She's alone. He sets down his coffee thermos and he asks for an Americano. When she brings him that Americano, he pulls out that revolver. The man says, this is a robbery. Samantha puts her hands up. He could tell that she was terrified. He said, turn off the lights. Samantha completely complies with everything. She turns off the lights. He says, give me all the cash in the register. Samantha empties the register. She's too terrified to scream and he knows it. He thrives on it. He tells her, get down on the floor. Again, she complies. Mind you, the man at this point is still outside the kiosk. He then tells her, get down on your knees and turn around. And at that point, he leans over into the kiosk and zip ties her wrists together. So then he tells her, move out of the way. And then he jumps inside the kiosk with her. So now he is in there with her and it's a tight space. And I cannot imagine the fear going through Samantha at this moment. He then asks, where's your car? And she's like, I don't have one, but my dad will be here in a half an hour. I mean, he'll be here any minute to get me. So at this point, the man's thinking, okay, she's just stumbling over her words, or is she just trying to throw me off so that I hurry up and leave because I think her dad's gonna be here any minute. He ends up going with the ladder and he starts telling her, you know, did you trigger any alarm? If you did, I'm gonna kill you. Um, I have a police scanner in my ear, which he actually did. And she's like, no, no, I didn't push any alarm or anything. There actually was an alarm at the kiosk, but she never triggered it. I don't know if she couldn't get to it or if she was just, you know, paralyzed with fear and just couldn't. Then he starts making conversation with her, like, you know, what's your name, this and that. He then he shuts the windows and then shoves napkins into her mouth. He then tells her, we're going for a walk. As they're walking through the parking lot, the man looks down and sees a nice digital camera on the ground, um, which would have been worth around 300 bucks. Um, he is a thief after all. He is a thief. He's he's a scumbag but and a monster, but he's a thief as well. So he's distracted enough and Samantha actually makes a break for it. So she takes off running, but he quickly regains control of her again. Like it's snowy, the conditions aren't great. Um, but he presses his gun into her and he tells her that he'll kill her again if she tries to run. This is very quiet ammo. Um, I will kill you. He pulls her close and he tells her, act like we're boyfriend and girlfriend and you're just too tipsy and I'm helping you walk. Because there were people, I guess, like within earshot. Um, but at this point, I'm sure she's completely paralyzed with fear. What are you gonna do? And again, there had been heavy snowfall. There are snow mounds blocking views and everything. So what, what could she have done really? He then puts Samantha in his white pickup truck and they take off. Ironically enough, they end up pulling up next to a patrol car at a red light. And again, the man has that earpiece in his ear so he can completely tell now that she never pulled any kind of alarm or anything. And all he can do is hope that he's instilled enough fear in her that she's not gonna start screaming or making any noise. And he was right. 
Um, they pull away. Samantha, I'm sure, is terrified, knowing like that was probably my last shot to get away. What is this guy gonna do to me? This whole time, he's still telling her um, that that was a robbery, obviously, at the coffee stand, but I'm gonna hold you for ransom and that's it. I'm not gonna hurt you, anything like that. So I'm sure she's just kind of hoping for the best at this point and maybe believing him is the only way she can cope with this moment. At some point he realizes she doesn't have her cell phone. So he actually goes back to the Common Grounds coffee stand kiosk and retrieves her phone, which is so brazen. Um, he then starts to send text messages to people that are trying to get a hold of her, uh, mainly her boss and her boyfriend telling them she's having a bad day and it's just gonna lay low for the weekend. Her boyfriend had actually gotten to the coffee stand a little bit late to pick her up. And he just figured she had gotten a ride home with someone else. And then he starts getting all these text messages and he's kind of believing it, but he's also like, okay, this is kind of weird. So he's a little bit on edge. So he actually waits outside of his house for her, like on, I think on his porch, um, kind of just waiting up just to see if she turns up or anything like Meanwhile, that. Meanwhile, the man is driving Samantha around. He's trying to think of where am I going to take her? And finally it's right like at 2 a.m. at this point. So he's like, okay, I'm just gonna take her home. I know my daughter's asleep and hopefully my girlfriend's asleep. So he's kind of waiting it out in his driveway and he has a shed in the front of his driveway and it's a neighborhood that the houses are pretty close together. Um, so he's kind of, you know, sitting there amping himself up, um, making sure no neighbors are watching, making sure like his girlfriend doesn't pop out or anything like that. And finally, he musters up the courage and he takes Samantha into his shed. He then tells her, I'll make you comfortable. I'm gonna have this police scanner in my ear though, so if I hear any reports of anybody screaming from this neighborhood, I will know, I will be back here before the cops and I will kill you. So then he, to secure Samantha to the shed, he decides to take a piece of rope. He screws it in on each side of her neck to secure her to the wall of the shed. And he so graciously moves her zip-tied wrists from the back to the front of her and tells her, just chill out. Okay, buddy, I sure will. Um, and then he, and this is so, so creepy. Again, this is all, you're gonna hear me talk about how this is straight out of a horror movie, but he turns on heavy metal and then he cranks it up, which is so scary. Any kind of music cranked up in a terrifying situation is gonna amplify that times a thousand. Um, this guy. Anyway. So he drives to her house to retrieve that ATM card and unbeknownst to him, her boyfriend is outside and he sees this guy trying to get into their truck and he starts like screaming at him. What are you doing? What are you doing? And then he runs inside to, you know, get help. I'm sure he's thinking this is just some random trying to break into my truck. He never could have known how close he was. Um, but he did get that ATM card and then he was out of there. By the time Samantha's boyfriend came back out with help, uh, the man was gone. Um, and he probably honestly didn't even notice that her ATM card was gone. The man tested out the pin number that Samantha gave him and it worked. She told him the truth. Then he returns to the shed where he sexually assaults Samantha and ultimately strangles her to death. He then goes inside to wake up his daughter. You see, they are going on a pre-planned cruise and there is nothing to jazz you up for vacation like murdering someone on your property. 
while your family is inside. So what are we going to do with Samantha's body now? Yeah, we're just going to leave her there. Mind you, his girlfriend is not going on this cruise with them. She'll be there. So he puts Samantha's body in a cabinet in the shed and just leaves her there. So the next day, Samantha is reported missing. The police have almost no leads other than the surveillance footage of a man abducting her. He was, again, heavily disguised. So February 17th, he gets home and he decides, you know what? I really do want that ransom money, but there's only one problem. You have to have proof of life for a ransom. Um, mind you, this is Anchorage and it's been two weeks. So at this point, Samantha's body is frozen solid. So he takes a bunch of space heaters. I've even heard that he possibly took a hair dryer to dethaw Samantha's body. Um, but obviously there's no way to make her look alive at this point. So what does he do? He just cakes on the makeup, but that's not doing it. One more thing should do the trick. He takes some fishing line and he sews Samantha's eyelids open. He then props her body up next to a copy of the Anchorage Daily News and snaps a photo. He then sends a text from Samantha's phone to her boyfriend saying, Connor Park sign under pick of Albert, ain't she purdy? And he's demanding $30,000 and that it be deposited into Samantha's bank account. Um, he's referring to Connor's bog park under a memorial flyer of a dog named Albert. So I'm not entirely sure who discovered it. I know that her family did see it. I think maybe they went a bunch of them, like a bunch of people along with her family and then informed the police. Um, so they unfortunately did see the photo. Meanwhile, the community comes together to raise the money for Samantha's ransom. Um, her father, James, then deposits it into Samantha's account as instructed. So authorities are tracking all these withdrawals. They're actually staking out a bunch of ATMs in Anchorage, but then something weird happens. They're seeing activity in Anchorage. They're seeing activity in Arizona, in New Mexico, in Texas. Who is this guy? They know one thing, he's moving east and now they have a vehicle description. They're able to connect the withdrawals to a white Ford Focus, so they put out a bolo on the, on the vehicle immediately. On the morning of March 13th, 2012, Lieutenant Mickey Hadnot notices that same white Ford Focus parked at a Quality Inn in Lufkin, Texas. Um, he stakes it out for a bit and he sees a man exiting the hotel and getting into the vehicle. He's a tall, slender man with dark, curly hair. Why does he have to have curly hair? He makes us look bad. Anyway, so he starts to tail him and he uh, radios to Corporal Brian Henry, who then comes and pulls the man over for speeding. Then uh, Corporal Henry, uh, Lieutenant Hadnot, um, along with Texas Ranger Steve Rayburn, then search the vehicle and they find a couple things. They find Samantha's phone, her ATM card, and then they also find some of the disguises in which the man was wearing who was taking money out of Samantha's account. Obviously, they have cameras at the ATM, so he disguised his face. They find all of this incriminating evidence. Haven't you heard, buddy? You don't mess with Texas. So they've got their man. And who is this man? Well, it's Israel Keys.
there's footage of this and you can tell that he's nervous, but he's trying to keep his cool. He's telling them, oh, I'm just down here in Texas for my sister's wedding, but he has no way of explaining away the items found in his car. Um, so they arrest him and then he's extradited to Alaska. So who is Israel Keys? Well, he was born January 7th, 1978 in Richmond, Utah to Heidi and John Jeffrey Keys. He was actually the second of 10 children to a Mormon family. The family moved a lot and sort of jumped religion to religion. Um, and after eventually leaving the Mormon faith, they joined churches that were oftentimes very strict and even sometimes with extreme racist ideals. At the time they lived in Colville, Washington. They lived in an isolated cabin. It didn't have any electricity or running water. Israel would later describe his childhood as Amish-like, and I think eventually they lived in an actual Amish community. They began attending a church called The Ark, which practiced white supremacist Christian identity ideology, where they became acquaintances of Shane and Chevy Kehoe, um, who, if you don't know, were members of the Aryan People's Republic. Shane and Chevy would eventually become infamous for a massive shootout in Ohio. They went off the grid for several years and eventually Shane turned himself in and he received a 24 year prison sentence. Chevy or Chevy, I don't know which one it is. I really don't care. Um, but he would ultimately be sentenced to life in prison for the torture and murder of a family of three, including an eight year old girl. He also allegedly had ties to Timothy McVeigh and was possibly involved in the Oklahoma City bombings. Now, this is just a rumor, um, but he was allegedly seen with him right around that time. Uh, let me know if you guys want me to take a deep dive on that because that is a rabbit hole itself um, and it's pretty crazy. So let me know. As a kid, Israel would start fires, he would torture animals, he would break into houses and steal things, he would steal guns. People took notice of this and started to keep their distance. He said, and I quote, I've known since I was 14 that there were things that I thought were normal and okay, and that no one else seemed to think were normal and okay. So that's when I just started being a loner. People found out about some of the stuff I did, like my parents and parents of other kids who would hang out with me. They would find out about some of the stuff I did, and that's when I just started doing stuff by myself exclusively. He idolized Ted Bundy and would study serial killers, including the book Mindhunter inside the FBI's elite serial crime unit. Israel eventually became an atheist and by doing so was shunned by most of his family. He began working as a carpenter when he was 17 and would eventually go on to become a contractor. He ended up enlisting in the army and he says a lot of that reasoning was to rebel against his parents because you know they were very anti-government. Um, and he ultimately ended up being honorably discharged. In 2000, Israel started dating a woman named Tammy who lived on the Makkah reservation, and they ended up having a daughter in 2001. They ended up breaking up in 2005, and eventually he started dating Kimberly, a nurse practitioner. Now, when Kimberly moved to Anchorage, Israel and his daughter followed, and this is the same Kimberly who was living there when he abducted and killed Samantha. Eventually, you know, he started his own construction business and was seemingly to everyone around him living a very normal life. He was a doting dad. He was, you know, a good boyfriend. 
fiance, whatever he was. Um, but nobody really suspected anything other than maybe sometimes he was a little bit odd. Not too long after his arrest, Israel is willing to talk with one stipulation. He wants everything out of the press. He doesn't want his daughter to suffer because of what he had done. Oh, you don't want your daughter to suffer. You poor, poor guy. Got it. He says, I'll tell you everything you want to know. I'll give it blow by blow if you want. I have lots more stories to tell. I know almost all serial killers take pleasure in this part, but this D-bag was so smug and disgusting. And I think worst of all, he was willing to die with the whole truth. He said, this is entertainment for me. He then tells investigators that he has kill kits or murder kits stashed all over the U.S. They ended up finding a few of them, specifically in Alaska and New York. Um, and when they dug them up, they are five-gallon plastic buckets containing guns, ammo, zip ties, etc. All of that stuff that I mentioned earlier and sometimes more. Um, he would stash them all over the country years in advance. Oftentimes, Israel would fly into one state, rent a car, then take it to another state to, you know, stock, stake out a place and possibly abduct somebody and kill them. He then tells police that he's killed at least seven people, only naming three of them. Samantha Koenig, Bill Courier, Lorraine Courier. He gives a detailed account of the night of Bill and Lorraine's murder and even pulls up um, a Google map of the farmhouse where you can find their bodies. He laughs as he tells the story and is telling them how Bill tried to tell him, you know, you don't have to do this. It's not too late to let us go. He's laughing about this. He explains that after the murders, he had planned on actually burning the farmhouse down. But by this time, you know, daylight started to creep up and I didn't want to draw any more attention to it. So he just left them there. When police go to check this out, they are devastated to learn that on April 12th, 2012, the house had been demolished and everything had been taken to a dump site. They painstakingly searched the dump site for 11 weeks, but unfortunately the bodies of Bill and Lorraine Courier are never recovered. Crazy enough, before he abducted the couriers, he actually found a man that he was going to abduct near his hotel in Essex, but the man ended up getting out of his reach before Israel could get to him. And the man, I don't think ever even knew that he was being followed. And then he ended up going to the couriers and that's what happened. He confesses that in the days that followed the ransom note for Samantha Koenig, he dismembered her body, took it out to Matanuska Lake, cut a hole in the ice where he disposed of her. When police retrieve Samantha's body, it's scenic and beautiful. This is not a place you think you're going to go to retrieve a body. But I mean, where is? The lake is frozen on top and there's also a layer of snow covering everything. So they don't even know where to start. So they actually have to use sonar equipment to locate her body. Israel claims that he's been committing violent crimes for 14 years. And he says that he has rules that parents and children are off limits. Okay, thank you, sir, for your moral compass. And you know what? I totally believe you. Actually not. In fact, 
He is suspected in a few other crimes that throw that whole no parents or children thing right out of the window. He claims he was 20 when he planned his first murder, but claims he had raped others before this. He tells FBI agents that he raped his first victims at the Deschutes River near Maupin, Oregon, sometime between 1996 and 1998. He says the girl was between 14 and 18 years old with sandy blonde hair. He said the victim was with a group of people. He was able to separate her from the group, dragged her into a remote restroom where he sexually assaulted her. He didn't end up killing her though. She talked him out of it, telling him, I'll never tell anybody. He claims he lost his nerve and he said for years he beat himself up for not killing her. He said, quote, I wasn't violent enough. I made up my mind I was never gonna let that happen again. Now to date, authorities can't find any police report of that incident at all. Um, it is possible that she never reported it. He's also suspected in the murder of a girl named Julie Harris. Julie Harris was 12 years old on March 3rd, 1996. She was a double amputee um, and she ended up disappearing that day and her prosthetic feet were found in the Colville River a month after her disappearance. Israel would have been 18 at the time and he was still living in Colville. Her murder is to this day unsolved. Authorities strongly suspect Israel murdered a woman named Deborah Feldman, uh, who was from New Jersey and buried her near Tupper Lake, New York. Deborah was 48 at the time of her disappearance, was last seen April 8th, 2009. Another possible unsolved crime that could be linked to Israel are the murders of 56-year-old Mary Cooper and her 27-year-old daughter, Susanna Stodden, who were shot while hiking in Washington State in 2006. So Israel claims he took the lives of at least four other people and says he killed four people in Washington State a couple sometime between 2001 and 2005 and two separate victims in 2005 and 2006. Could that be Mary and Susanna? It's certainly possible. He says that he disposed of bodies in Lake Crescent, which is in Washington state. I also think again, he could just be throwing random dates out there to confuse people because he's a piece of shit and gets off on it. One last thing he might be involved in, and this is a high profile one, so you might have heard of it, uh, the Boca Mall murders or the Boca Killer. In 2007, three murders as well as an abduction were all linked to the Town Center Mall in Boca Raton, Florida. March 23rd, 2007, 52-year-old Randy Gorenberg was kidnapped in her own SUV from the mall's parking lot. Her body was found near the Civic Center at Governor Lawton Childs Memorial Park, just five miles away from where she was taken. On December 12th, 2007, the bodies of Nancy Bokikio, who was 47, and her seven-year-old daughter, Joey Bokikio, were found in their still-running SUV in the parking lot of the Town Center Mall. Also, no one was ever arrested for it, but police believe it was linked to a 2007 carjacking of a another mother and her infant son. So it's August 2007 and a woman and her two-year-old son are abducted also from the town center mall and the woman describes the kidnapper using goggles and zip ties on them. 
Now, police know that goggles and zip ties were also used in the Bukikio murders. So the woman says she was leaving the mall. She was abducted at gunpoint, uh, taken to an ATM to withdraw money, and then eventually returned back to the mall. There's a sketch from the surviving victim, and I think it looks like somebody we all know, but I don't know. I mean, it could be him. It might not be him. I don't know. Now, you might be asking yourself, how did he afford this cross-country killing spree? Well, Israel was just as much of a thief as he was a rapist and a murderer, and he financed all of this by robbing banks, robbing his victims, as we've seen, um, and he would tell you know, people around him that he was just out of town visiting family. So investigators are doing their best to keep everything under wraps just so they can keep getting more information from Israel. But eventually the media gets wind and once Israel finds out, he starts to give less and less details. Not long before his arrest, Israel actually did spend some time with his family in Texas. And when one of his sisters tried to get him to reconsider his atheism, a pastor who was present at the time told investigators that Israel said, quote, you don't know the depths of darkness that I've gone to. You don't know what I've done. So December 1st, 2012, Israel managed to somehow obtain a razor blade and ends up committing suicide at the age of 34 in his jail cell. He slit his wrist and strangled himself to death with his body not being discovered until the morning of December 2nd. Under his bed, they found drawings of 11 skulls with upside down crosses and one pentagram, and they were written in his blood. One of the drawings included the phrase, we are one. The FBI believes that the number of skulls correlates with the number of the victims that Israel actually murdered. So they actually think it's possibly 11, or he's trying to say that it's 11. Uh, basically 11 skulls, 11 murders and the pentagram being because Israel is the devil as he sees himself. On December 10th, 2012, Israel's mom and some of his sisters attend a small funeral for him in Deer Park, Washington. The pastor says, quote, he is not in a better place. He is in a place of eternal torment. I think I speak for everybody when I say amen. So with that, ladies and gents, was Israel Keys. I am so sorry to have done that to you, but it had to be done. Had to get that story out there. Investigators describe him as all your worst fears personified. And I agree. I mean, he literally had no type men, women, despite his supposed rules for not killing parents or children. I think it's BS anyway. But the fact that he traveled and was so methodical and meticulous and had no type men, women, it didn't matter. I mean, how many others that we don't know about? I mean, he was everywhere. This has scared me more than any other case I've ever researched, ever looked into, anything I've ever seen. I, I don't get how this isn't talked about. Netflix, where are you at? Anyone with any possible information is encouraged to call the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. That sounds fake, but seriously, that's the number. I mean, he was everywhere. So you need a one-stop shop. So 1-800-C-A-L-L-F-B-I. You can also go to their website at www.fbi.gov tips. If you made it this far, thank you so much for tuning in. This was Crime and Cassie. Stay safe out there. Wear your SPF. 
Um, you can follow me on Instagram at crimexcassie. You can also follow me on TikTok at crimexcassie. Um, also, don't forget wherever you're watching or listening to like and subscribe. And you guys, reviews go a long way. So, okay. Thank you so much. And I'll see you next time. Bye.